Tertullian wrote much, but of little account. Pantanus was the first master of a catechetical school established at Alexandria in Egypt, which piqued itself on its superior erudition and whose taste was ruled by the Platonic philosophers. Pantanus was much addicted to the sect of the Stoics, a sort of romantic pretenders to perfection. The combination of Stoicism with Christianity in the system of Pantanus was a depth of the Satan that very much debased the truth and beclouded the light of the gospel. The Antipas composed of the simple and unlearned, happily escaped the infection, and preserved unadulterated the genuine simplicity of the faith of Christ. The stoicized Christianity of Pantanus laid more in the way of the learned, who are always ready to be caught by any bait that flatters intellectual pride Pantanus always retained the title of the Stoic philosopher after he had been admitted to eminent employments in the church. Eusebius highly commends him for his philosophy. A blasting wind as it was, a depth of the Satan, highly destructive of Christian vegetation in all infected by it. He died soon after the commencement of the 3rd century, being at the time catechist of the Alexandrian school for the indoctrination of youthful Satans in the depths as they speak. Clements Alexandrinus was a disciple of Pantanus and of the same philosophical or satanic cast of mind. He was of the eclectic sect. He succeeded Pantanus in the school and became the preceptor of Origen and other eminent perverters of the truth. Besides the office of catechist, he filled that of a presbyter in the ecclesia in Alexandria. He was what is styled in our day a reverend divine and professor of divinity. His course of instruction, he tells us, was this. As the husbandman first waters the soil, and then casts in his seed, so the notions which I derive out of the writings of the Gentiles serve first to water and soften the earthy parts of the soul, that the spiritual seed may be the better cast in and take vital root in the minds of men. This was putting the flesh above the spirit. Milner well says upon this that the apostles neither placed Gentile philosophy in the foundation nor believed that it would at all assist in raising the superstructure of Christianity. On the contrary, 
they looked on the philosophical religion of their own times as so much rubbish. But in all ages, the blandishments of mere reason on such subjects deceive us. Vain men would be wise. Clement's Christianity was Nicolaitanism, and the divinity he taught, the depths of the Satan, derived from the writings of the Gentiles, commingled with ideas received from the scriptures, which the philosophy rendered void. The next clerical constituent of the Satan we have named is Origen. He was preeminently a child of the woman Jezebel, and floundered notably in all the depths as the fathers speak. He was of a most presumptuous spirit, which incited him to philosophize with great audacity in things religious, and permitted him never to content himself with plain truth, but to hunt after something singular and extraordinary. Demetrius the bishop committed the school in Alexandria to him alone, and he converted it wholly into a school of religious information, or, as it would be styled in our time, a theological seminary. He was a courageous, self-denying, learned, exceedingly austere and pious member of the synagogue of the Satan. Heretics and philosophers, says Milner, attended his lectures, and he took, no doubt, a very excellent method to procure regard to himself at least. He instructed them in profane and secular learning, and obtained among the Gentiles the reputation of a great philosopher. He encouraged many persons to study the liberal arts, assuring them that they would, by that means, be much better furnished for the contemplation of the Holy Scriptures. He was entirely of opinion that secular and philosophical institutes were very necessary and profitable to his own mind. Does it escape the reader how much in the course of the Christian annals we are already departed, though by insensible degrees, from Christian simplicity? Here is a man looked up to with reverence, at least by the Eastern Church, as a great luminary, a man who in his younger days was himself a scholar of the amphibious Ammonius, who mixed together Christianity and pagan philosophy, and who, by reading his motley lectures, drew over, in form at least, many of the heathen philosophers to embrace the religion of Jesus. These mention him often in their books, some dedicate their works to him, and others respectfully deliver them to him as their master. All this Eusebius tells us with much apparent satisfaction. To him, the gospel seems to have triumphed over Gentilism by these means. 
there is no doubt, but in a certain sense, Origen's success was great. But, in return, the pure gospel suffered greatly by an admixture of Gentilism. What can this extraordinary teacher and author mean by asserting the utility and even the necessity of philosophy for himself as a Christian? Are not the scriptures able to make a man wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work? Suppose a man of common sense, perfectly acquainted with all the learned law of Ammonius, to study only the sacred books. Is it not conceivable that he may acquire a competent, nay, even an eminent knowledge of the scriptures? But what are all Origen's labours, but vain attempts to mix things which the Holy Spirit has declared will not incorporate? The mischief which actually followed was to be expected. Characters were confounded, and henceforward among the learned, the distinction between Christian godliness and human philosophy is but faintly marked. If Origen had simply and plainly expounded to his learned auditors the peculiar and vital truths of the gospel, I cannot but suspect that many of them would have ceased to attend his instructions. The famous Porphyry, than whom Christianity had never a more acrimonious enemy, takes notice of Origen's allegorical mode of interpreting scripture, observes that he was acquainted with him when young, and testifies to his rapid improvement under Ammonius. He asserts, what indeed Eusebius contradicts, that Ammonius, though brought up a Christian, turned afterwards a Gentile. He says that Origen continually perused Plato, Numenius, and the rest of the Pythagoreans, that he was well versed in Cerimon, the Stoic, and in Cornutus, and that from all these masters he borrowed the Grecian manner of allegorical interpretation and applied it to the Jewish scriptures. Thus, he introduced such a complicated scheme of fanciful interpretation as for many ages after, through the excessive respect paid to this man, much obscured the light of scripture. He died about A.D. 260, aged 70 years, a teacher and seducer of the servants of Christ from the simplicity of their faith into the depths of the Satan, as they, the fathers of the Jezebel apostasy, speak, and their children unto this day. Now, if the reader compare the depths 
excavated by Origen and his patristic coadjutors, in the corruption of the primitive faith and discipline delivered to the saints by the apostles, with the depths of the divinity taught by the clergy, or spiritual guides of the people, of every name and denomination, he will find that they are as intimately related as cause and effect. The depths of the Satan as they spoke in apostolic times were the speculations of Hymenaeus and Philetus, and of the many other false prophets that had gone out into the world, accumulated in Origen and others. Second Timothy 2 verse 17 and 1 John 4 verse 1, whose word or teaching Paul said would eat as doth a gangrene. This is known by all pathologists to be destructive of all organisation and consequently of life. The word gangrene of the Satan has consummated its work upon the theory and practice of Christianity, apostolically delivered. This is obvious to all scripturally enlightened observers of the spiritual system of the world. The word is not preached by the clergy, who are ignorant of the first principles of the oracles of God. They preach the dogmas they have traditionally received from the false prophets, they style the fathers, the fathers of their holy orders, at the head of which is the Holy Father, they term the Pope. These fathers were the perverters of the gospel Paul preached, by their inventions, which substituted sacramentalism for faith nullified the doctrine of a resurrection to judgment, abolished the kingdom, transmuted the great mystery of godliness into scholastic jargon about Trinity, destroyed the sacrifice of the Christian Passover by affirming the immaculateness of Christ's flesh. In short, totally abolished the faith, and instead thereof set up a system of rantized heathenism, which may be defined the sacramental deliverance of immortal ghosts from plutonic fire and brimstone, and consequent translation into an Elysium beyond the realms of time and space. This definition is the symbol of the depths of the Satan as they speak, now from the pulpits of Satandom in all the world. The Satan's ministers, transformed, as Paul says, into ministers of righteousness, all proclaim the heathen dogma of a soul or spirit in man, capable of disembodied existence in eternal weal or woe, and all the religion or pietistic invention they have patented, proposes, or professes to do, is to save this phantom from the flames of their Tartarus and land it in Elysium, 
which they call paradise. It is this pagan dogma which lies at the bottom of all their depths. Abolish this, and the religion of the clergy is abolished too. For their religion, which is a cure for such souls, can be of no use to the people if it be proved that there are no such souls in them to be cured. Hence the clergy, when they find courage enough for the conflict, fight hard for hereditary immortality, an immortality derived hereditarily from the earthy Adam, the first sinner upon whom the sentence of death was pronounced by the judge of all the earth. A man under sentence of death is as a dead man. Immortality derived from a dead man by natural generation is the immortality for which the clergy contend in all their depths. Without it, their craft is destroyed and their occupation gone. It is the great sandbag of their system, which, when removed from the foundation corner of their temple, leaves it without support, and in its fall, reveals to the contempt of all observers the shallowness of the depths as they speak.